Good morning. Let's pray as we uh, let God's word speak to us today. Father, we pray that your word would speak to our hearts at the deepest level. We pray that your spirit would uh, convict us and encourage us as needed and that um, your words would come from the text today, we pray. In the name of Jesus, amen. Sometimes you like to claim your rights. You like to claim your freedoms and liberties. But there are your better moments. Sometimes you're willing to give those up. When do you give up your rights and liberties and freedoms? If you think about celebrities for a minute, I don't think we have too many celebrities here this morning, but there are certain celebrities and they seem to be very quick in asserting their perceived rights. They've reached a certain level of status in their performance and their ability and they think that means they have rights. So often they'll have a green room and they're waiting to come out. We don't have that for our speakers here. But they have a green room and they're waiting and they have certain demands. Only the right kind of music must set the mood before they come out. Only the correct coloured M&Ms must be in the bowl. Maybe you've heard stories like this. And if they don't get their way, then they won't come out and perform. They won't come and do what they've said they'll do. They'll take their bat and their ball and they'll go home. So celebrities are quick to assert their rights. More sensibly, citizens have rights too. And many of us here would be Australian citizens this morning. If you were stranded overseas you would have a natural expectation that the Australian government would do its best to bring you home. So if there was a natural disaster or a war, something of that nature, you would think the government will do its best to meet my needs and return me because I'm a citizen. I have certain rights. I also have certain responsibilities, but I have certain rights and the government will do its best in those situations. Now those rights are a bit of a grey area because not every situation is written into law. So there's some determination on how these rights are expressed in your case. And we've seen that in the last year where we've had many Australians stranded overseas and there's a great debate about do we bring them all back at once or does that infringe on the rights of the people already living here by bringing back potential disease. So there's been this balance and this controversial um, conversation going on because it's all about the rights of the citizens. Whose rights are greater? Is it the rights of those overseas and stranded or is it the rights of those living here who want safe haven? So we've seen celebrities claim their rights. We've seen citizens have rights. But on a more day-to-day level, we see that the rights that we have are taken and given up in the case of our use of the road. Um, So sometimes we get very mad when someone cuts us off and and we say, I had right of way. That was my right to go first. And then other times, when we're more mellow, we let someone in traffic very graciously because we're running early, so it's okay. But we let them in. We put down and put aside our freedom and our rights. We give right of way to the person entering traffic. So in each case, we're weighing up the big picture. We understand the context of the event. 
as to when to exercise our rights and freedoms and when to give them up for others. And in today's account, quite a a quirky account, really, in Matthew 17, we see this peculiar story about Jesus not exercising his rights. And we're going to discover a few things today. We're going to discover how and why Jesus chooses to assert or waive his rights. Then we're going to explore how the Apostle Paul imitates Jesus in this area. And finally, we're going to have a think about what that means for us today. So we're going to see how and why Jesus chooses to assert or waive his rights, how Paul follows that, and finally, what it means for us. So as we had the text read to us by Rachel this morning, and thank you, Rachel, we immediately dive into the story and we see this narrative account that Matthew has written for us. And it's quite a strange story, isn't it? And we wonder, why is it there? And even some commentators wonder, why is it there? Is it because Matthew, a former tax collector, really liked tax stories and so he puts it in here and the rest of us jump over this one because we don't like tax time or tax stories? Or is there something bigger going on here? And I put it to you that there is something bigger going on here. As we've seen with some of our other quirky stories or accounts, it's best to look around us in the context and discover what's going on. And earlier, we've seen Jesus in chapter 17 early on He's seen by God as the one who pleases him well in that story of the transfiguration. Moving forward, we find this story of the temple tax and we wonder what's it all about when Jesus says, let's cause no offence. And we move forward in chapter 18, we'll find out who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. That's kind of about asserting our rights, isn't it? Because the disciples of Jesus, those following him, wanted to know, what does it mean to be great in your kingdom, Jesus? And Jesus says this in verse 3 of chapter 18, truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. So we see the upside-down nature of Jesus' kingdom when it comes to asserting and giving up our rights. And in this story, we find Peter at the centre yet again, and poor old Peter, he seems to end himself up in the middle of hot water and controversy when it relates to Jesus all too often. He's kind of the lead disciple, as it were, he's often putting himself forward and jumping in and speaking first. And in this case, the disciples and Jesus have returned to Capernaum and it's their last visit. It seems to be somewhat of a home base for them and there's even some clues in, across the text that Peter's house may have even been here. So they might have been staying at Peter's house. So that's why in the story, as these temple workers come to ask about the temple tax, that's why they approach Peter first. And it's a bit of a, a flipping of roles here, isn't it? A swapping of roles In times past, we see that often Jesus is approached and said, why do your disciples act in this way? But in this case, Peter is approached and asked, is Jesus going to pay the temple tax? Now, the temple tax was a tax levied against Jewish males over the age of 20. It was about two days' wages and it was put towards the running costs of the temple and that was instituted in the old Hebrew law. So it's a sum of 
two drachmas, about two days' wages. And Peter is put on the spot here. The people approach the house, they see Jesus and his disciples have shifted back in for a time. They approach and they say, is Jesus going to pay the temple tax? And they're kind of asking, expecting a yes here. They're asking, he's going to pay the temple tax, isn't he? And Peter thinks, okay, finally there's a question I reckon I can answer. I think I can do this on my own. I'm going to answer the question. Pretty confident here. So he says, yes, yes he does, in verse 25. And then Peter walks back in the house and Jesus responds. And Peter's probably thinking, oh no, I thought that was a simple one. Jesus responds, what do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth collect duty and taxes? From their own children or from others? And Peter goes, okay, it's like a general tax question now. It's not just about the temple tax. And Peter goes, I hope it's not a trick question. From others. The king wouldn't charge his own children the tax. And Jesus says, yes, then the children are exempt. And so what we see here in this dialogue between Peter and Jesus is that Jesus is implying that he is exempt from the temple tax. Jesus subtly is implying, as the Son of God and the temple being a place of worship for God, I would essentially be paying tax to myself. But that's not the end of the story here. Jesus, in this case, doesn't seem to assert his rights. He doesn't take hold of all his liberties he could as the Son of God. He says something quite interesting. He says, but so that we may not cause offence, go to the lake and throw out your line. Take the first fish you catch. Open its mouth and you'll find a four drachma coin. Take it and give it to them for my tax and for yours. Now, if you've been tracking along with us in our series, Jesus is King, you know that Jesus is not normally shy about conflict. I mean, we saw in chapter 12 when it was a time when Jesus was grilled about his disciples' behaviour. They were walking through the grain fields. The religious elite popped out of the grain fields and they said, why do your disciples pluck grain on the Sabbath? It's supposed to be a day of rest. And Jesus is not shy about conflict in this case. Jesus is not shy about asserting who he is. In the end, he says, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. I'm the one who interprets what it means to take rest. And the rest is for the people. It's not to be a burden to the people. And so Jesus confronts these Pharisees. And later on, he would say, you bind heavy burdens on them. You put heavy burdens on their back, but you don't even lift a finger to help. So Jesus says here, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. He's very clear to them in their context. I am God. I am the Son of God. I assert who I am and I say that it is my right to interpret the law. I have the freedom to do so because I am the Son of God. So Jesus has not been shy in the past about asserting who he is and claiming his right as the Son of God to make statements. So he could very well, in this case comment about the temple tax and say, well, I'm the son of God. It's a tax for God. I don't need to pay it. I'm one of God's people. 
That would also mean that the disciples wouldn't need to pay the tax because the close relatives and friends of the king's people wouldn't pay tax. So they could all put their heel in here and say to the temple workers, no, it's not our duty to pay the tax. But Jesus strangely is avoiding offence here. We want to know why. That's the key to the story here. Well, the reason Jesus is willing to cause no offence is the temple workers appear to be quite low on the chain of command here. There would seem to be the case for that. And so if Jesus were to make a great scene about being the Son of God, to assert his rights, it's the equivalent of the blue M&Ms in the green room. If he were to say, no, this is my right, I don't pay the tax, what would happen? Well, the temple worker would have no authority to dispute there and make claims. He would go back to his boss, his manager, the temple ruler, the leader, and he would say, there's a group of rebels that aren't paying the tax, and so it would get kicked up the chain of command. I imagine it's much like working in a government department. It would get kicked up, and then there'd be meetings, and they'd have some planning sessions about what went on. They'd fill in their temple incident report. They would have a strategy meeting, decide whether to contact the other temples in the area, and then they'd make a ruling. But in this case, Jesus sees his opponents, as it were. These temple workers, in fact, are not opponents. They are people that are just trying to do their duty. They're trying to make sure everyone pays the tax as they should, so the temple can keep running. And so Jesus avoids offence here. He says, let's cause no offence. And he gives a very strange solution. He says to Peter, a keen fisherman, I don't know if he's keen, it's his job. They say the best way to ruin a hobby is to turn it into a job. So maybe Peter started as a fisherman, made it his career and now he hates it. But in any case, Jesus gives him strange instructions. He says, take a line and go and catch a fish. And this is strange for Peter because Peter's normally a net fisherman. Peter's normally a man of the boat. Um, He's more of a boating, camping, fishing guy. He'd rather get out in the water and throw the net over the side and do it all at once and be efficient. But Jesus says, this time, go to the lake and throw out your line and take the first fish you catch. Now, the application here for us is not that we all go fishing, and that's scriptural. There's deeper things going on here. So it seems like the fish is something that would not normally be caught by way of the net. And some people think it might be a flathead, which the Jews actually wouldn't eat. They're a bottom-feeding fish. They go around in the mud and the grit, and they eat whatever's on the bottom of the water there. And so it's very likely they would scoop up things that aren't food. And so Jesus says, take your line. You won't need your net this time. You just go into the lake, cast it in, and the first fish you catch, check inside its mouth, and you'll find a coin. In fact, it's a four drachma coin, a stator is the actual coin, take it, that'll be enough for my tax and for your tax. So is this just a weird solution or is, it, is there some wisdom behind what Jesus is saying as he causes no offence? Well, the solution is wise for a number of reasons. It's, there's some clues earlier. Jesus and his disciples are living off some donations from people that support his work. And so Jesus avoids wasting gifts 
to their merry band of gospel workers. Jesus says to Peter, let's pay with found money. So it's not ours. It's not the people that have generously supported the work we're doing as we roam about preaching and proclaiming and healing. He says, let's use found money to pay the tax. And this will appease those lowly temple workers that we don't want to conflict with. There's no point us doing so. And it'll also be a wise use of the money people have given us. So found money is the answer in a very strange place. Now, we're not told in our account here whether Peter takes this advice, but we assume it to be the case because there's nothing further said on the matter. So we leave Peter off taking his line down to the lake to find a flathead with a coin inside. All this because Jesus is willing to cause no offence. Jesus is not willing to assert his rights that he could well assert in this case. He could put his foot down and say, I am the son of God, I don't pay temple tax. If anything, you should be bringing your gifts to me. Jesus is not like that. So the difference in occasion between chapter 12 and chapter 17 is what? The difference in occasion is whether the conflict and the claiming of his rights actually fits his purpose, the purpose that his father has given him. And we saw earlier on that mountain scene, the voice comes down and says, this is my son whom I love, verse 5 of 17. With him I am well pleased, listen to him. Why is the father so pleased in the son? Because the son is on mission for the father to bring back the lost, the dying, the sick, all those metaphors have used of sinful rebels like us. And you go further in chapter 18, the clue's there again, it's going to be the parable of the wandering sheep and it says, just like I would, the shepherd would search for the one lost sheep, still having 99 in the pen, the same way your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should perish. So Jesus is on mission to rescue those that can't rescue themselves, to give new life to the dead, to heal the sick. And we see in our own lives that we're in need of this transformation because we're very quick to assert our rights, aren't we, when it suits us. When someone jumps in line at the shopping centre, and yet worse, they have 13 items and it's only a 12-item queue. Can they not count? Do they not know the rules? My rights are being infringed. So we're quick to point out when someone is falling short because it infringes on our freedoms and liberties. Who else is like Jesus, though? We've seen how Jesus wisely determines that it is his mission. It is his mission that determines whether he will assert his rights and make claims to being son of God. And when it is not on mission, he's willing to let it slide. We see the Apostle Paul is very much like this. Paul is like Jesus in that he picks and chooses when to assert his rights. Let's have a look at a couple of examples fairly quickly. And you could find more as you, if you dig through the story of Paul. But if you were to jump to Acts 22 you'll find there's a great commotion going on. And in Acts 22, 25, what happens is Paul is talking to 
the religious folk and proclaiming the good news of Jesus. And they see this message of Jesus, the one who has died for sinners and risen to new life to prove his authority over sin and death. They see this as a new and dangerous sect. They see it as an upstart religion that does not follow on from what they have been teaching. And so there's this great commotion as Paul proclaims in the market square, out in the public, the good news of Jesus. And he's unfairly arrested as the instigator. He's about to be flogged by the Roman soldiers. So the Roman soldiers show up because of the great commotion. And all Rome cares about is that citizens live and those subjugated territories live in a way that doesn't cause an uproar and you pay your taxes on time. Then you're kind of free to do roughly what you like, as long as you keep the peace. So when there's an uprising, they are worried because this means their empire could be in threat in this small area. And so they come along and they, they, they come along hard and they put the boots in. And the first person they see is probably Paul up the front speaking. So Paul gets arrested, potentially as the instigator. And he's getting chained up, ready for a good flogging from the, the Roman soldiers. And at this point, Paul says, are you allowed to do this? I'm a Roman citizen. I haven't been charged with anything. I've not been found guilty of anything. So Paul asserts his rights as Roman citizen in this case to say, should you be doing this? Is this the method you should follow? And so the Roman soldiers, much like the temple workers, probably afraid of the chain of command going higher and higher and those much firmer style meetings than perhaps the temple ones and the strong judgments cast against them for doing the wrong thing, they back down and say, okay, we're going to change course here. This fellow Paul is asserting his right as citizen. We must follow the proper protocol and extend the rights of citizenship to him. So they gather everyone together to sort it out. They bring together the great crowd the Sadducees, one of the religious groups, the Pharisees come together and the Romans say, all right, let's sort this out. Let's get you all together, sort it out. You're squabbling like children. And Paul wisely knows, I'm going to assert my rights here because this is a moment where I can speak the truth of the gospel. I can speak of the mission of Jesus. And with even greater wisdom, You'll read in chapter 23, verse 6, when Paul speaks, he says, My brothers, I'm a Pharisee, descended from the Pharisees. But what you actually see is he speaks this. I stand on trial because of the hope of the resurrection of the dead. And if you've been in church a long time, that doesn't sound that controversial. We believe in the resurrection as a historical event upon which our faith is founded. But Paul knows that the Sadducees and the Pharisees strongly disagree on this matter. The Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection and the Pharisees do. They see it as a, a long-term thing. They don't see Jesus as the answer to that. But Paul knows, I can speak the gospel, I can show the Romans that they're butting heads together. It's not me. And so Paul uses this moment to preach the good news of Jesus, to show that he's opponents are the ones that are causing the great kerfuffle is a good word and he should assert his rights in this case so he's imitating Jesus when it's on mission he's willing to assert his rights he's willing to question the authorities and say are you doing this in the correct manner but there are times that Paul like Jesus says you should give up your freedoms 
And he says it to those people that are Christians. Paul says you've got great freedom in Christ. Just like the Sabbath law was not supposed to be a bondage, living a life in relationship with God through faith in Jesus is supposed to be freeing and enables us to live in the way which we were designed, to live in harmony with God, just like in the garden. But Paul says there are times that he's willing to lay aside his rights. Paul says, I won't assert my freedoms that I know are there for me. And the reason is though that the good news of Jesus is heard and received by as many people as possible. I mean, we feel pretty good about ourselves, don't we, when we let that person in traffic. It's a busy day. We're not sure we're going to be right on time, but we still let someone in. We think, okay, well done. You know, bigger person there. Paul goes much further. This is really confronting for me. He says on one occasion, I'm willing to give up eating of meat for those people that disagree with me so that they might hear the good news of Jesus. And as a keen person who loves to barbecue, I find this to be the most confronting, confronting statements of Paul. I'm like, wow, he's willing to go to great extents to lay down his rights. Can you imagine that? Giving up all your future barbecues so that someone in the church might understand more fully who Jesus is. Come to trust him, place faith in him, be given new life. So Paul says, there are times when I assert my rights, like Jesus, and there are times when I lay them down. This is how he would phrase it. Though I am free and belong to no one, I've made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. I do all this for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessings. So we've seen Paul is just like Jesus. I mean, Paul tells people that he writes to, imitate me because I'm imitating Jesus. And we see it right here. He says, I'm going to lay down my rights when it's on mission, when it reaches more people. I'm going to assert my rights when it proclaims the message, when it proclaims the mission of Jesus. What then does that mean for us today? We might think this is a moral lesson. We need to go and give way in more traffic. We need to let the person with 13 items into the line anyway, when it says 12 items or less. But it's not a moral lesson. This points us to the beauty of Jesus. Our series is called Jesus is King. It points us to the nature of the King. Just like in Philippians 2, it tells us that Jesus is equal with the Father. He can claim those rights. That's his to claim. But he does the opposite of what the demanding celebrity does. There's no blue M&Ms in the green room for Jesus. He makes himself nothing. He takes on the form of a servant. He becomes one of us. He humbles himself to this point and yet lower again. He becomes a servant who is willing to die a shameful death of Roman crucifixion because it's his mission. The reason the father says, this is my son who pleases me so much. Isn't this what we crave in our leaders? That they would use their rights for good purposes? And this account of taxation gives us that a small picture, yet again, weaved in through the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus is king, but he's not your average king. He's a king on a mission that is willing to lay down his rights of kingship so that people might be restored to relationship to God the Father. What an amazing thought. 
So that's the first thing I would say we can see from the text here. The second is, it highlights how we go about asserting our freedoms and liberties or laying them down. We often do them in quite a self-centred fashion. We often highlight what we've done in the shopping aisle or in the traffic lane and we use that to counterbalance all the times when we've infringed deliberately on other people's freedoms and liberties and rights. We say, well, on this side, remember that time I was running late and I let them in traffic? It doesn't matter the way I've treated people over here. I'm still a pretty good person. We try and take the moral high ground. I would say there are moments when that attitude in us is exposed. Those times we've justified our forcing right of way. And the small positive examples that we've built up are stripped away and we see what our heart's really like. We're a bunch of rebels that are all fighting to build our own kingdom, all fighting to be king. We prefer our name being the title, not Jesus is king, perhaps Darren is king, or insert your name there. So the message here is not that you should practice harder. The message here is that you need Jesus because he's the only one that can do it. We'll get to the end of the story. You can read ahead, it's not a spoiler alert. And Jesus does the ultimate act of laying down his rights. We see it right before he goes to the cross, right before he's crucified. And he's in the garden and the great weight of expectation is bearing down on him, all that comes ahead, both the physical pain and torment and also the separation from the Father for that time. And Jesus says this, if this can pass from me, let it be so. But in the end he says this, not my will, but your will be done. The reason he does that is because he expresses the mission of the Father. 18, chapter 18, verse 14. In the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should perish. The writer of the Gospel of John puts it this way. These things are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, Son of God, and that in believing, you might have life. That is our response that we're called to, to see Jesus as the answer, the one who imparts life to us, the ones to us who can never do enough on this side of the scale to show that we're worthy because we always understand the darker side of us weighs down so heavily on this side of the scale. So this morning, the challenge is, Are you working really hard to become a better moral character? Or are you looking to Jesus to give you new life? You need to enter new life that only God can give you so your mission is changed. You can be like Paul. You can see people have a great need. They've been separated from God through their rebellion. They need to be reconciled and brought into deep relationship. Now that I've experienced new life, I can play a part in that. I can lay down some of my rights and spread the message and mission of Jesus. 
So the question for all of us this morning is this. Have we seen the beauty of Jesus as the King? Have we responded to him for the first time in trust? What the Bible calls faith, that he will change us and give us a new heart and a new life that we might live this way. And this morning, are you still resting in that trust and that faith and that power of the new life that Jesus gives you? Have we seen the beauty of Jesus and responded to him? Is the question for us. Let me pray. Father, we're so thankful that we see who you are. We see who God is in the person of Jesus. And we're drawn by his beauty. And we're challenged by the way he lives in contrast with how we live. And this morning, we trust that your word has been effective in pointing us to the need for Jesus to transform us, to make us new creatures in you. We pray that your word is effective. We would not forget it this week. We thank you for all these things in the name of Jesus.